The Chaser Report is recorded on Gadigal land. Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report with Dom and Charles. Today, our guest is leading cultural historian Graham Turner. His new book is called The Shrinking Nation, How We Got Here and What Can Be Done About It. It has a sandcastle on the cover with an Australian flag on it. Sometimes it feels like that's all there is to this country of ours. Graham Turner, welcome to The Chaser Report. So nice of you to join us. Thank you very much. Now, when you sat down to write this book, I think in, in late 2021, things were looking a, a, a tad bleak. What drove you to, to dive into, I guess, the the morass in which we found ourselves at that point? Yeah, I guess it, it, it was I, it was long, longer than just 2021 in the in the uh, in the making because I was just getting more and more amazed at the kind of degradation of our political culture, and the, at the same time, there's all these waves of social change happening. Our politicians were from both parties were just sitting on their hands and waiting for things to happen. <clears throat> and so it really was driven of frustration. But there were a couple of trigger points, you know, the, the reaction to COVID was one, but also I live in the Northern Rivers, and so I was watching the way in which governments responded or didn't respond to the emergency around the floods. Mm. And so there are, there are a lot of provocations that made you think, really, you know, this country used to be a bit better than that. We need We need to think about how it can... Put it back on track. More in just a moment as we get further into this topic. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Graham, Anthony Albanese's Prime Minister and everything's fixed, isn't it? Since 2021, aren't we, aren't we in a bright new Australia where every problem has been resolved? If only, if only, <laughs> yeah. Certainly, I think that there was a, a collective sigh of relief when Albanese was elected. But now I think we're waiting for the other shoe to drop so that actually some change might occur. All right. So let's look at the, the, the trigger points, I guess, that you were seeing at, at that stage. And you've identified a disconnect between what was happening on the ground and what was happening in, in our parliament. What did that look like from your perspective? Well, where I am in, in, the, in the Northern Rivers, I was watching delays in, um, in, in, pe- in people being rescued. I mean, not just helped, <laughs> but rescued from the floods. And, and then the long aftermath, you know, there are still people more than a year on now, still people living in, in tents or living inside shells of homes. And so the idea that government is there to, to advance the well-being and, and maintain the security of the population that seems to have taken a second seat. You know, we're, we sit back now and we look at, at the surplus and we're supposed to congratulate the government for producing that. But we've still got people who are homeless. We've still got lots of unemployed. We've still got lots of disadvantaged people. And uh, I think really the surplus isn't going to make much consolation to those people. I was um, on radio when that was all happening up in Lismore and was fairly astonished that in, in a place known for flooding regularly, there weren't any boats, it seemed. The SES had no boats. You needed an army of basically legends in tinnies going around and sorting everything out. It just seemed like a pretty bleak point uh, in terms of a state 
responding to anything happening, particularly given climate change. That's right. There was almost no state response for a week. Um, yeah, I don't think that's an exaggeration. There was almost nobody on the ground for a week. And then the, then the, the New South Wales uh, came in with it, but there was almost no interest federally. And so the idea that government is there to protect us and that they're, they're a safety net when things go wrong, that's um, that's really not easy to to believe in any longer for a lot of people who've been victims of not just the floods but of COVID and a range of other things, the fires before that. But how much? Because that was Scott Morrison. I remember that, and remember just his his sort of indolence at responding to anything. There, there just seemed to be no urgency on getting the government involved. Well, he, he, his famous catchphrase was, it's not my job. Well, he didn't it, hold a hose. He didn't hold no, a no hose. No one's ever seen him holding yeah. a hose. To be fair to him, he's never been there pitching in. But, but how, much, how much can you ascribe, like, you're, you sort of argue that it's a sort of broader social malaise, a philosophical malaise about the government, but can't we just all pin it on Scott Morrison? Like, he was singularly just... A piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was certainly the the low, the low point, but mm. I don't think it's just Scott Morrison. I'm, I mean, I think an awful lot that happened before him enabled Scott Morrison, but in many ways the, the manner in which Tony Abbott um, ran his government and before him really even Kevin Rudd, mm. um, where a lot of big issues were, were, were balled to the, you know, pushed to the side so that, Really, they were, and climate change is the most obvious example of that. But there are plenty of them where you had big I mean, social issues that needed to be addressed, and the issue for the government was not to address them, but to come in with some kind of political fix that would move it off the off the media's agenda and give them some free space. The idea of actually using government to make life better for all Australians has not been around for a very long time—a couple of decades, I think. To be fair to Kevin Rudd, he was at least, uh, I think, between five and ten years away from his committees reporting back on on a roadmap for a plan for change. So had he been around longer, he would have uh, sorted out. What I wonder is, though, uh, have we ever been good at this? Certainly um, my sense is, yes, that the Australian government, particularly due to federalism or and um, perhaps just the sort of fair, fair degree of comfort that most of us live in and the lack of urgency that, that seems to be there, the government hasn't ter- been terribly responsive or on the front foot about much in my lifetime that I can recall. Were things ever good were we ever in there responding quickly and, and indeed getting ahead of the curve with these sorts of challenges yeah i think there are plenty of points in australian history where you can see that just after the war for instance massive investment in housing um came about that was from a, a liberal government i i guess the, i guess what happened if we're talking the broad changes what happened is that they outsourced a lot of government they really didn't want to have to invest in a lot of things that we thought were important aged care child care dealing with the environment, all of those things got outsourced so they no longer became government's problem, they became problems that had been handballed over to private concerns. And I think that shift, which is about a 20, 30-year shift, has meant that governments just don't do as much and they don't claim to do as much. I mean, John Quiggan wrote a great piece where he said, this is what would have happened you know, 50 years ago if COVID had happened. We had our own Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which would have produced vaccine. We had our own airline, Qantas, which could have airlifted people back to Australia. We had our own quarantine centres that were set up 
all around the country. There are all kinds of things that the government did then and could do that it no, no longer can do and that it outsources to private companies. They don't do it because they don't make any money out of it. But a lot of people have gotten rich through privatisation. <laughs> as against that, I'm sure they're doing wonderfully well. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But, that, that, I mean, what you're talking about, that, that shift is... That's a Hawke Keating thing, wasn't it? That that was when they started. I, I yeah, it goes, yeah, it goes back that far. Mm. And but and so why 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 did they suddenly decide that they didn't want to be actively involved in all parts of the economy? Well, I guess there's a bit there's a big change in theories about how government works and about how the economy works. That you know people normally talk about it as neoliberalism, and that I suppose that's as good a name for it as any. And that that had prioritised the economy as the thing that we needed to look after. And the idea that the nation or the society might be something that was more important, that that got sidelined. And so there was a fundamental shift in the way people thought government should work and the role of the individual within society. That meant that individuals got buried and the economy took over the idea of society, the nation, and became the primary thing that people wanted to um, support. I guess there's a couple of issues there, aren't there? Because it's not just about what the policy choices are that are made, but it's to do with state capacity, so how much the state is actually able to do, what its mechanisms are. We talked about this recently with the Reserve Bank, which has the one lever of interest rates and nothing else it can really do. But then also there's an, ide- there's an ideology in there, isn't there, about people's beliefs about what a government is supposed to do. And you see, I guess, a big difference between the view in Europe, where the state's expected to do a lot of things, and in places like America, where... There's a, a bit of a, a view that all the government needs to do is get out of the way and unleash the private sector and everything will be will be wonderful. Has that changed, do you think, over the decades in Australia? No, well, hopefully it's in the process of changing. I suspect that, that that's kind of running its course now, but really that's what's dominated policy for certainly the last 20 years, the idea that small government is good government, that the market is the best way to regulate opportunity and distribute resources, and that the government should leave all of that alone. That, you know, that has been... A kind of article of faith for both both major parties for a long time, but I do think that the rhetoric during the last election and some of the things that Chalmers is saying around setting up a well-being budget, for instance, would indicate that maybe that's sort of running out of steam because people see the consequences of it. You know, they've been told that if the rich get rich, they'll get rich along with them. Well, they've seen pretty clearly that that doesn't happen. The rich just get rich. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't help. The rest of us. And I think people are getting to the point where they're seeing through that ideology and thinking, well, actually, we need a better way of explaining how government works and how it discharges its responsibility to the community. But isn't one of the problems with the rich getting richer is that then suddenly they've got more power to keep that wealth, you know, that, that suddenly our media institutions start being corroded because they all start supporting, because they're all owned by the rich, they start supporting that mode of, you know, doing things. Yeah, no, that's true. And unfortunately, I mean, nobody forced them to use their money to consolidate their power. They could actually use their money to social benefit, but they've chosen (laughs) not to. They've chosen to make as many attempts as possible to rig the system in their favour. And that's, in, in a way, that's seen as being okay, 
within that community. And that's something that probably does need to change. And it's something that you would hope will change over the next decade. Now, you're a pioneering figure in the world of, of media studies. I'm keen to know what you, what role you think the media has in this in a bit more detail, because it's often seemed, certainly in, in recent years, that uh, sections of the media were essentially uh, a wing of government and, and in cahoots with government. We saw this in RoboDebt recently, where essentially you had, um, I think Alan Tudge had a list of friendly media outlets where he was guaranteed, uh, you know, to be able to get the message across in, in whatever way he wanted. Has that um, has that changed in, in your period of studying the media, that we've essentially got really another wing of the coalition at times through um, Talkback Radio and, of course, uh, News Limited and its, and its various organs? Yeah, I think it has changed. It's certainly... Um Certainly the media has seems as if it's more partisan because it's less diverse now, so you fewer fewer different voices. But I think really in the print media and in television too, um, the power of the power of news limited has has really made a difference to the way politics gets dealt with in Australia. And that's become well, that's really the case over the last twenty years or so. And so if you want to work for a company that's not owned by Murdoch, <laughs> you know, you, there aren't many left. That you, mm. that you could work for. And so there is a lot of, lot of compulsion upon journalists to do what the propriety, proprietor wants to do. I know there's all that talk about how much influence Murdoch exercises personally. He doesn't need mm. to exercise personal influence. Everybody knows what the job is. So it, I think what has happened is that it's become more partisan. It's been, become more concentrated, but also the, the, the notion of facts and the notion of what's true and what isn't true has has kind of dissolved. So there's actually a lot more freedom and license now for media reports to just simply give us bullshit rather than give us stuff that we might rely on as being true. Mm. Are, you, are you seeing any countervailing trends? One of the things you, you write about in the book is the, I guess, the, the, the teal uh, revolution in a sense. And we've certainly seen three people like David Pocock coming into the parliament and a lot of what the teals have wanted to do. They've been pretty unrelenting on issues like the Integrity Commission, uh, commission and some of the other things um, that, that they've pushed through. Do you think there are any green shoots of, I guess, a resistance to the, the torpor we've seen in Australian public life in, in recent years? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think to some extent there's kind of a vacuum being opened up by the inaction uh, or disinterest in government um, by by the coalition and by the Labor Party. So that has left less space. And it's not just the Teals who are kind of on the Liberal end of the spectrum. Somebody like Jackie Lambie also represents a kind of authenticity that mm. that means that, you know, she speaks from her experience and will take a position on the basis of that. So if we're Pocock's an, a really good example of somebody who's, who's a conviction politician and is prepared to do what he can to change what happens in Parliament. So the, from my point of view, the more of that, the better. That the, the, the way that the, the parties, the dominant parties have worked for the last few decades has not really been in Australia's best interest. Do you think the jury's out on Anthony Albanese at this stage? I mean, it's still fairly early in his first term. He's focusing clearly on the voice and that's proving to be quite a... A struggle, but I, I guess that is at least a, a fairly major attempt to um, revise our institutional arrangements. He's obviously taking uh, a, a lot of a lot of heat. He's expending a lot of political capital on this at the moment. Um, and if it, if it does go down, that will be quite challenging for him. But that that does seem at least one example of a politician at least trying to do something new to address one of our most pressing, uh, you know, historical and social problems. There are a number of areas where. Um, you can point to the Albanese government kind of grasping the nettle and deciding we're going to make change happen. Aged care is probably another one. And so 
Yes, I think there is there is a reason to be um, optimistic about it, but it's still early days, as you say. It's, it's early in, in the term and you do have the sense that they're holding their nerve and avoiding doing anything that will scare the horses until they go for a second term. But, you know, they'd better have a pretty good, brave second-term agenda if they're going to operate like that, I think. <laughs> well, if you believe Peter Dutton, it's a treaty. Uh, that's the that's the thing that's been discussed. But I guess on climate, and Charles, we've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast, um, uh, there's been a lot of disappointment with what the government's done um, in terms of approving new mines and so on. How does this all look from the Northern Rivers in a place where, I guess, everyone's terrified of more fires and more flooding? It's pretty bad. I mean, people in this area must must wake up in the middle of the night every time it rains, wondering what's going to happen. So there's no faith at all, I don't think, in government providing support into the future. And the buyback program that they set up uh, got wound back in terms of the numbers of houses that, that were going to be included. So mm. there's a lot of resentment and disillusion, I think, in this area about the role that government has played. And um, I mean, to some extent, the community stepping up, you know, it's one of those places where that happens. And there are a couple of local petition, uh, politicians, uh, one from the National Party and one from the Labor Party, who've been quite heroic in the way that they've pushed for their communities here. So, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a completely bleak outlook, but it does seem as if they feel like they're ignored in Canberra and in Sydney. They don't really matter. They matter to their local politicians, but they don't matter. Um, in the places where change is going to occur. In terms of, uh, I guess, the, the questions to do with the, the state capacity and um, the views about the role of government, do you think there's uh, there are some changes we can make to how the system works? People have talked about reforming federalism, perhaps looking at things like how the Senate works, uh, maybe even the two-party system. Are, are there changes that, that you've um, got in mind that might make things a bit more reactive um, and make us a bit more able to deal with all of the 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 troubling policy challenges that are, we know are around the corner. Well, it, I'm, I'm probably not the person to ask about constitutional change. I'm not. That's, that's kind of outside my area of expertise. I guess. I guess what I'd like to see is um, a change in the way in, in which the public service is structured and the rate relation it has to expert advice and so on. I think that that what's happened with the PwC inquiries revealed just how badly served we've been by these consulting firms stepping in and providing advice without any kind of knowledge. And I think that one of the real detriments that's happened to some extent as a result of the, the rise of Trump is this undermining of the idea of actually well-informed advice. And so you look at what happened during the fires and so on, and the, the ignoring of advice from experts in that, that area and see how much damage that caused. There really does need to be a much a much more structured relationship between government and advice that is informed and is disinterested and is not simply driven by vested interests. Yeah, I was going to suggest something slightly different, which is uh, more culture wars, because I think <laughs> that's where, that's where you know, everyone gets really activated, everyone feels really involved, very engaging, the media gets to sort of, there's, there's lots to talk about, there's a colour and movement. Uh, why not just a few more culture wars? So we should invent a few enemies. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It'd be, good, <laughs> it'd be good to see that ramped up in the opposite direction of the way it's been going for the last 20 years. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Chaser Report. Less news, more often. It's interesting looking, though, at um, the way the Liberal Party responded to this. And you've got fairly different paths, certainly here in New South Wales, the... Um, it's early days for the, the new opposition here, but they seem to be far more more moderate, whereas Peter Dutton seems to have really doubled down on the way things have been done in the past. Um, at times, he's seemed to be channeling um, Tony Abbott more than Scott Morrison and certainly going back to the legacy legacy of John Howard. Do you think that um, that in the long term, that the, the sort of negative view about um, the state that we're in, the shrinking nation... Do you think we're going to bounce back to that? Labor does tend to overextend itself and then get voted out uh, or indeed do nothing and get voted out during the <laughs> Rudd-Gillard period. Yeah, I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, it, it does seem to me that what's happening now is pretty unusual. You know, the, the, the level of, of support that the Liberal Party now has uh, or the lack of support that it now has and, and their failure to respond to that by changing their policy or even their rhetoric does feel like a bit of a death spiral to me. And if, if that makes if that is due to people wanting better politics, better way of producing politics, a more engaged and connected form of politics, that would be great. But uh, you know, we did vote Scott Morrison in, so you know, you, you wonder if the if the Australian electorate could be make could make that kind of mistake again. But it, I wonder how Bill Shorten feels about that in hindsight, just looking back mm. and how yeah. how utterly he was rejected on on multiple occasions. He must wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> But I, I guess if there's a consensus, this is the thing in, in a two-party system, if there are things that both parties agree on, we've certainly seen this in New South Wales, um, where possible culture war topics, for instance, the, the age of uh, consent for same-sex relationships and so on, some of this sort of stuff has, has simply been agreed by both parties. If you had a coalition in the more, you know, I guess, Turnbullian bishop model, a more moderate coalition, then a lot of these things would get taken off the table uh, and no longer prosecuted if both parties essentially agreed on a lot of this sort of stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think opting for a kind of half a partisan, you know, winner-take-all politics, that really goes back to Abbott, I think. Um, that's That's been really destructive. But it's interesting that, like you say, in some of the state politics, that's not necessarily the case. It does seem to be a particular disease that has affected the federal parliament. Mm. And it's hard to see how this current generation of politics, of politicians and their advisors are going to break away from that unless there's really savage electoral pushback or unless there's a bigger, um, a larger number of independents coming into uh, parliament that they have to deal with. Well, it does seem as though they've they've responded to the teals by kind of going, well, we're not going to get those seats back, so let's just go further to the right. Um, we Charles and I do sometimes end up being a little bit negative about where we're at and and the future of the country, uh, don't we, Charles? It's a bit of a mm. bit of an issue on the podcast as we discuss, discuss Australian politics. In your book, though, you do try and strike a happy note uh, note at the end, and and you assert, and uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could be so optimistic. You assert that there's a better country somewhere uh, attempting to escape from all of this uh, what is it that gives you that confidence that we're, we're gonna somehow um, or at least there's a chance yeah. of us why of us are you improving? an idiot <laughs> and do you regret already publishing that yeah should you have deleted the, the positive conclusion <laughs> yeah uh, and for, for, for the second edition you'll just just go somewhere in here there's a worse uh, country I was all wrong it's turned it's all turned to crap yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah look it's interesting actually when I wrote the first version of this my publisher said 
oh god this is really relentless you know and and I, I did need to think okay well is that is that the full story is there something else to be said and then i thought actually there are places you can look and particularly the ones the places i was looking were um looking at, at the role of particularly strong women who, who'd made an impact on public policy such as great time grace time mm. and seeing a kind of a, some kind of groundswell of support for people such as that i also see the voice as being um a positive although if it goes pear-shaped as quite possibly could now that that would certainly mean i'm going to rewrite that section of of the book but i i mean i do think that the fact is that there's so much of a disconnection between the everyday experience of australians and the way in which politicians think about um shaping that experience that there has to be some kind of uh recourse to what life is like for the rest of us so i kept kept on thinking that really there needed to be uh, a reinvestment in kind of building some kind of national cultural policy that produces things that make us feel good about ourselves and feel good about belonging to the country and i think that there is still a lot to be done in that area that can have effects so you know having watched the matildas the other night i <laughs> i had that you know just reminds you that there are lots of things that you get out of being part of a nation and really they're the things that the cultural policies that Keating in particular set up uh, back in the 90s and, and and supported things like the film industry the music industry and so on that actually generated pleasure and and meaning for lots of Australians and i think we've got to go back to some of that and think about how we can make life more pleasurable and meaningful for for everyday Australians than it is at present it's certainly tony burke would want us to point out that they're working on a national cultural policy although we'll we'll sort of see what it what it does going forward i guess though it is worth remembering despite all the bleakness there are things that that can change i mean i, I remember how how many years was it charles q and a every single week forever it seemed for a decade same sex marriage was discussed and debated mm. over and over again mm. and and um, just now that we've finally gotten on and done it in the most painful and unnecessarily destructive way possible by having the postal survey when clearly it was going to get up, that's no longer discussed. That's just a given. Mm. It's almost become like Medicare. It's just a thing that, that no one will ever propose to get rid of. Um, I say that even though Donald Trump may get re-elected and, and re-litigate all kinds of things there. But we do eventually get, get somewhere better, don't we, on some of these issues? Yeah, it- and I think what – I guess what I was thinking too when – I was working on this book is that in in most cases what we're looking at is is politics lagging behind the population in terms of their embrace of progressive change and and having to catch up and so that's bad that they're having to catch up but the fact that there's pressure on them to do that is good <laughs> that is funny that you no mainstream australian politicians ever going to be in danger of being ahead of the nation in terms of being progressive, <laughs> uh, you know that's you'd have to go back to I guess Whitlam for that. Anyone to risk frightening the horses in any way at all? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Graham, it is. It's a fantastic book. Uh, it's a it's a rocking read. Uh, it, and as Dom said, you know, it, yeah, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah, a, it's it, an evisceration of of yeah, Morrisonism basically. Yeah, um, uh, but but and, it uh, it does get hopeful at the end. That is true. Yeah. 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 Well, that's right. I'm, not give, I'm not giving up hope. That's, that's true. Yeah. And you certainly read through it and kind of go, oh, that's that's right. Oh, thank God that doesn't happen anymore. And there's certainly, re- reading it at this point in, in August 2023, it does feel as though even if we bounce back um, with a change of government at some point, possibly in the next year or two, um, some things for the time being have, have uh, gone off the agenda. Uh, Graham, congratulations. Uh, the book is The Shrinking Nation, How We Got Here and What Can Be Done About It. 
It's out now from UQP. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Our gear is from Rogue. We're part of the Iconoclast Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 